turbulent times call for clear-headed insight. That's hard to come by these days, especially on TV. That's where we come in. Salem News Channel has the greatest collection of conservative minds all in one place. People you know and trust, like Dennis Prager, Eric Metaxas, Charlie Kirk, and more. Unfiltered, unapologetic truth. Find what you're searching for at snc.tv and on Local Now Channel 525. It's Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Got questions concerning elder or state law? Attorney Mike Connors has the answer. He was recognized as one of New York's top lawyers by New York Magazine and brings over 30 years' experience to the table. His office number is 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Here's Mike Connors. We are gathered here on hallowed ground. Horses raise, heads bowed down. Welcome to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth. Hello, everybody. And one of our attorneys, Kelly Decker. Hi, great to be here. Okay, so for those of you who don't know, this show is about estate planning and elder law, or at least the first part of the show is about estate planning and elder law. The second part, we talk about politics and history. Tonight, we're going to be talking about, scratch that, today, we're going to be talking about both politics and and history. One of the things we're going to be talking about is one of my favorite Civil War generals, at least characters of the Civil War, General Dan Sickles. But we're not going to be talking about General Dan Sickles in the Civil War. We're going to talk about the time before the Civil War when he got off on the murder charged by temporary insanity, which set a precedent in U.S. legal history. Again, the first part of the show is about estate planning and elder law. The idea behind estate planning is to pass assets from one generation to the next, paying the least amount in taxes we need to pay legally, avoiding going through court, avoiding probate, and as far as elder law is concerned, trying to save assets from nursing home bills. So we're going to start. Kelly, do you have a question that gets emailed to the... Yes, I do. So today's question is, why should a why should you use a lawyer for Medicaid planning? In a lot of cases... Most of the people in the New York City area, when we're, we're dealing with, they own houses. And houses are worth anywhere from 500000 to $2 million to $3 million to $4 million. You don't want to screw that up. You want to do it right. And I see a lot of people, let's say for the sake of argument, you know, let's say somebody, husband and wife, has a million-dollar house. Social worker, husband's applying for Medicaid. Social worker says, you don't have to change the deed of your house because, you know, we don't put a lien on your house. We don't take your house. But then, let's say for the sake of argument, husband and wife, wife dies first, husband's on Medicaid, husband then dies. Medicaid's going to have a lien on the house after the death of the second spouse. Medicaid liens $15,000 a month for three, four years could take a lot of equity away from the house. You got to plan it right. Some people say, well, get the house out of your husband's name. That's fine. You get the house out of your husband's name. And if you don't do it right, again, it could cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars on the sale of the house if it's not done properly. You know, switching deeds around, it's it's not something that should, should, just should be done. You need to do some planning. What's the best tax way to do it? You know, I've seen this happen more than a few times. Somebody switches the heat, deed of the house from husband and wife to wife, and then husband dies three months later, and... We've lost sometimes five hundred, six hundred, seven hundred thousand dollars in tax savings because we're trying to pick up a three month nursing home bill. You gotta do it right. You gotta look at all the factors if you're gonna do planning. You you wanna see what are the tax consequences, what are the what are the consequences of the family. You know, a lot of times, you know, somebody just puts a deed, let's say in a son or daughter's name, 
and literally screws up the estate plan and at the same time causes hundreds of thousands of dollars in taxes and capital gains taxes, which shouldn't be paid. But that's because somebody's only looking at, at Medicaid. And not that all lawyers are perfect, but at Connors and Sullivan, we try very hard to put assets in such a way to take full advantage of the tax laws and to protect it from medical bills, nursing home bills. We don't want your assets to go to a nursing home. We don't want your children to pay taxes. It's not in our DNA. So if you want to come in and talk some of those things over with us, you're more than welcome to do that at Connors and Sullivan. Beth, do you have another question? I do. Um, This one's from Lauren. And uh, what's better, a will or a trust? And that is a question a lot of people ask. Well, it's not like they're against each other. You know, I hear that question all the time. Which should I have, a will or a trust? Everybody should have a will. That's without exception, because no matter what, you need somebody You need somebody to appoint an executor to wrap up your legal financial business matters. I mean, this happens a lot right now. Everything's in a trust, and, you know, I don't need a will. Somebody dies in a house. The police put the seal up in front of the house. And sometimes it's pretty hard to get that seal off if we don't have a will with an executor. I'm not even saying it's easy to do it when you have a will and an executor. But that's one example. Somebody owns a car. You know, sometimes every once in a while a car gets held in limbo or gets lost to the state because nobody has a will because you're not going to put your car into a trust. Now, you might, but your insurance rates could go up. You have a refund check coming in the mail from the IRS. You need to file your final tax return. The executor of the will does that. Now, at the same time, if you own real estate, you want to set up a trust because you want to get the house out tax-free. And the only effective way to get a house out tax-free is through a trust agreement and to take advantage of all the tax laws and at the same time protect your rights in the house. So again, it's not a will against a trust. Everybody should have a will. If you own real estate, you should have a trust. Hopefully, there are not a lot of assets to pass through the will. That's not what we want. But you can't control the situation. There could be a lawsuit after you're gone. I give you every time we do a seminar, there at least somebody asks the question, why do I need a will if I have a trust? And I can give you, you know, if you come in, I can give you 15 examples of what could happen. Some of them may not happen, but one of them, there's a very good chance it would. Now, each week, Kevin McCullough takes one question from our audience. We answer that question on his show. Take it away, Kevin. Hi, Kevin McCullough. Every week we promise you that Mike Connors of Connors & Sullivan uh, will come and answer one of your questions here at Kevin McCullough Radio. And, Mike, this week's question comes from Teresa. She says, Mr. Connors, my mom wants to apply for Medicaid and wants to know if she can withdraw all of her cash assets from the bank and then put them in a safety deposit box. If not, why not? Thanks so much, Teresa. Mike, what do you say? Well, that's really not a good idea. One thing for the sake of argument um, if you you take the money out of the bank, you got to show with Medicaid what happened to the money. <laughs> you know, you can't. You, you, I guess you could show them a receipt to the safe deposit box, but if you have money in the safe deposit box, it's not transferred out of your name. It's still your asset, so you can't apply for Medicaid. Number two, if you pass away with uh, the money in the safe deposit box, the bank, when they find out that you passed away, is going to seal the box. You're going to need a court order to open it. When you get the court order to open the box and when you probate the will, Medicaid's going to put a lien on the estate and they're going to get that money that's in the safe deposit box. So that's not the way to do it. Usually when we apply for Medicaid, we're not hiding money. We show them the paper trail. That's the best way to do it. And that's where a trust and uh, the different options come in. Correct. Exactly. 
Well, friends, maybe you've got a very practical question about uh, application for Medicaid, and you want to know what those options are. The best way to find out is to call Mike's office, 718-238-6500, 718-238-6500. And if you've got questions, uh, feel free to submit them. Ask Mike Connors at gmail.com. He'll answer one every week right here with Kevin McCullough Radio, but he'll also ask a bunch, uh, answer a bunch more of them on his own broadcast. Uh, ask the Lawyer, Saturday mornings at 8 o'clock on AM 570 The Mission and Sunday mornings at 11 on AM 970 The Answer. And uh, Mike Connors, uh, thanks so much. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks again, Kevin. You can hear Kevin McCullough Monday through Friday on 570 The Mission at 3 o'clock, Monday through Friday. And you can hear him on 970 The Answer, Monday through Friday at 5 o'clock. He has an additional hour on Wednesdays at 4 o'clock because he's doing some time with John Katsimatidis. Thanks again, Kevin. We're going to take a short break. After the break, we'll continue to talk about estate planning and elder law. Then we're going to be talking about politics, current politics, and the famous murder trial, the 1860s. For our Ask the Lawyer friends and listeners, you can attend any of Connors & Sullivan's free seminars on elder law, Medicaid, wills and estate planning, and more. Yes, it's all free and all close to you. So come to Connors & Sullivan's free seminars. On Tuesday, September 24th at Lenny's Clam Bar, 161-03, Cross Bay Boulevard in Howard Beach at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. On Wednesday, September 25th at 11 a.m., 3 p.m. and 7 p.m. at Connolly's Corner, 71 3 17 Grand Avenue in Masspeth and on Friday, September 27th at the Adria, 221-17 Northern Boulevard in Bayside at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. Can't go to any Connors & Sullivan's free seminars? Then call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500 for your own free office appointment. Make an educated decision on your estate and family legal solutions today. Just call Connors & Sullivan at 718-238-6500. 6500. That's Connors and Sullivan. 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com. That's connorsandsullivan.com. Find out what you're entitled to. Come to a Connors and Sullivan free seminar. For more information, call 718-238-6500 or go to connorsandsullivan.com. Connors and Sullivan. Plan now for later. Hello, this is Father Frank Pavone of Priests for Life. In 1948, the UN published the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, stating that, quote, everyone has the right to life, liberty, and security of person. And it also states, everyone has the right to recognition everywhere as a person before the law. Isn't it time for nations to pay attention to these statements when they craft their policies on abortion? This is Father Frank Pavone, National Director of Priests for Life. We all know someone who's been touched by cancer. It's the second leading cause of death. And it took the life of my father, John Wayne. But even in his final days, he was thinking about helping others and publicly campaigning to raise awareness about cancer. His courage and grit inspired our family to do everything we could to fight the big C, as my dad called it. So we did something about it and founded the John Wayne Cancer Institute 35 years ago to advance life-saving research. Our discoveries are fundamentally changing the way cancer is treated around the world. Cures are within our reach, but we can't do it alone. I'm Patrick Wayne, and I'd be honored if you joined us in the fight against cancer. You can make a lasting legacy by helping to eradicate this deadly disease. Together, we can save lives. To learn more, visit jwcigiving.org. 
That's jwcigiving.org. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with Mike Connors. Welcome back to Ask the Lawyer with me, Mike Connors, accompanied by my wife, Beth. Hey, everybody. And with us today is Kelly Decker, one of the attorneys in our office. Kelly, again, welcome to the show. It's not your first time on. Thank you for having me again. Give us a little bit about your background. Where where did you go to high school? Where did you grow up? And where did you go to law school? Sure. Uh, so I'm originally born and raised in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. I uh, came to New York for my undergraduate where I attended Binghamton University. So I've been in New York now 10 years. Uh, following Binghamton, I went to Toro College for my law degree and been practicing now for three years. Uh, and it's officially one year at Connors & Sullivan. Okay. Well, congratulations to that. Now, what kind of files do you work on at Counters Sullivan? Well, I am in the estates department, so we do uh, the administration and the probate proceedings in surrogates court, as well as estate planning um, and also Medicaid advice as well. You know, one of our guests tonight is talking about a murder trial. Did you ever hear of the Dan Sickles trial? I actually have not. Okay. Well, I know, Beth, you know all about it. <laughs> oh, yeah. But, He's a New Yorker. Right. Dan Sickles was a congressman from New York. He killed, mm-hmm. there's no question about it, he killed. Okay. He fran- killed Francis Scott Key's son, who was the U.S. attorney for Washington, mm-hmm. who was having an affair with his wife. Oh. And he shot him three times outside his home, and he three different weapons. You know, he reloaded shot again. Okay. Then he was tried for murder and was the trial of the century of the 19th century. He had a dream team of lawyers, including the future Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, Mm. the future commander of the Irish Brigade, Thomas Francis Marr, and they came up with temporary insanity. And it worked. (laughs) So he got off and then became a general in the Civil War. A lot of controversy during the Civil War. Lost his leg. At Gettysburg, which was then put in the War College Museum. He didn't actually lose it. No, he didn't lose it, but it was separated from his body. (laughs) Well, you can always look at it now. Yeah. Well, he did for years and years. And they say he would visit his leg every year. (laughs) Hey, let's go visit the leg. Okay. Okay. But he was really one of the truly remarkable characters of the 19th century. I mean, he was uh, he was accused of seducing the Queen of Spain when he was ambassador to Spain. And when he was 90-some-odd years old, he was indicted for stealing money from veterans' funds and things mm-hmm. like that. And Charmer. Know, he beat that indictment by dying. But uh, one of the truly <laughs> interesting characters of, of the 19th century. And, of course, we're also going to be talking a little bit of, of politics with Victor Davis Hanson, which is one of Michael's favorite authors. And I remember one book that he did where he was talking about liberating generals, which was some Greek guy, I forget, and then uh, William Tecumseh Sherman and George Patton and how those generals liberated the world and, and benefited Western civilization a lot more than some people may think. First, we're going to listen to Christopher DeRose talking about Dan Sickles, and then... Victor Davis Hanson, the case for Trump. If you're a homeowner age 62 or older and are finding it hard to pay off debt, or how about enjoying your retirement years with less stress? A government-insured reverse mortgage may be the answer or might be the perfect solution for you and your family. 
Hi, this is Frank Amelia, a certified mortgage planner. I've been a mortgage specialist for over 20 years, and I've helped countless homeowners all over the tri-state area tap into a little or a lot of their home equity so they can use it right now. This past October, the federal government made changes to the reverse mortgage loan program. Give me a call now so our office can show you how these changes affect how much money you receive and how the annual mortgage insurance costs have decreased. My job is to help you find the best solutions for your retirement goals. I do this by educating homeowners with straightforward information and answers. It's free to call and speak with me, Frank Melia, to determine if this FHA program might be able to help you and your loved ones now. Call and speak with me right now. I'll answer your questions and help you decide if a reverse mortgage is right for you and your family. Make the call now, 888-943-2646. Or try me on the internet at www.quanticbank.com backslash fmelia. Once again, call 888-943-2646 and you could be on your way to a stress-free retirement. Frank Melia, NMLS number 62591. All loans provided by Quantic Bank, NMLS number 403503. Whether you need help with drafting a will or trust, power of attorney, health care proxy, living will, or protecting your assets from nursing home costs, Connors & Sullivan's goal is always the protection of your rights and interests. The professionals at Connors & Sullivan have been helping people like you plan their estates and protect their families for over 30 years. I'm Mike Connors. Come to our office for free initial consultation. Talk with me or one of our experienced attorneys to see how we can help you protect your family, your assets, and your legacy. There is no one strategy that fits everyone, but the biggest mistake when it comes to estate planning is no planning at all. Call Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law today to schedule a free initial consultation with an attorney at any of their convenient locations in Brooklyn, Midtown Manhattan, Queens, and Staten Island. 718-238-6500. That's 718-238-6500. Or visit their website, connorsandsullivan.com. Time now for Connor's Corner, where Mike takes a closer look at topics like history, politics, religion, and more. Here's Mike. Welcome to the Connor's Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. Our next guest, we're going to be talking about the trial of the century. But the trial of the century was the 19th century, and the defendant was noted Congressman Dan Sickles. Chris DeRose, welcome to Connor's Corner. Thanks for having me. Okay, so the name of your book is Scandal, Sex, Murder, and the Trial that Changed America. Can you give the audience a little bit of a background? Yeah, so Star-Spangled Scandal is about the killing of the U.S. attorney for Washington, D.C. in front of the White House by Congressman Dan Sickles for having an affair with his wife. And, of course, the U.S. attorney in this case is American royalty. He's the son of Francis Scott Key, author of our national anthem, and the country was hooked. It was the first scandal and the first major news story we all followed together. Public couldn't get enough of it. Now, who was Dan Sickles? He was a congressman. Where was he from? New York City. And he was a close ally of President James Buchanan. Who was president at that time. Absolutely, yeah. How, how does the, the murder take place? Can you describe that to us? Sure. So Sickles receives an anonymous letter one evening telling him that his wife's having this affair with Barton Key, that they've rented a house. Uh, in the neighborhood north of the White House for carrying on their affair. And the letter is just so specific that uh, Sickles decides he has to investigate. And turns out he's able to establish the veracity of the letter. And he's deciding what to do. And he's in his house, and he's got two of his old New York friends with him. 
and they're trying to talk him down off the ledge and trying to coach him you know, into how he could get out of this situation with minimal embarrassment or damage to his reputation. And then Barton Key shows up in Lafayette Square waving a handkerchief at the house, which is the prearranged signal for him to go meet uh, Sickles' wife, Teresa. And so Sickles loses it. Whether he loses his mind is something that gets discussed at trial, but loses it and goes outside wearing three guns under a trench coat on an unseasonably warm February day <laughs> and kills the U.S. attorney right across from the White House. How many times did he kill? Uh, did he shoot, Key? Uh, it's undetermined. He, shot, he, he at least made contact with him three times. There were a number of blanks and misfires, um, but he fires quite a few shots over the course of two or three minutes based on the eyewitness testimony. Obviously, then, he gets indicted. What, what's the charge? He, he's charged with murder. Wh- where does the trial take place? It's in Washington, D.C. Uh, the building is still there. At this time, it was the city hall for, for Washington, D.C. Currently, it's the D.C. Court of Appeals building. And... Um, you know, there's not enough room for everyone who wants to come in and see it. People are climbing in the windows. The entire police force of Washington, D.C. had night and day had to be deployed uh, to protect the courtroom from the intense interest from the public. And it's really your first modern media scandal because you just had the telegraph scale across the country. And so you have people writing uh, reports detailed verbatim trial testimony um, back to all the corners of the country almost in real time. Who's the prosecuting attorney? It's a guy named Robert Ould. This is a singular event in American legal history. Uh, Dan Sickles had killed the guy who otherwise would have been charged with prosecuting him. And so President Buchanan had to appoint somebody new and wait for the Senate to confirm him before we could proceed to trial. And so Ould had been Barton Key's deputy really was the better lawyer of the two. But for political reasons? Um, yeah, political reasons. Uh, Key had been the U.S. attorney, but he had, he had dumped all of his work onto Ould to varying degrees over a course of years. And, you know, as I write in the book, I mean, Ould had been vexed in life by Key, sort of putting so much responsibility on him. And then when Key dies, he lives, in, lives in with the greatest responsibility of his career, which is getting a murder conviction uh, in the most intense media environment that had ever existed up to that point. Dan Sickles puts together kind of his dream team, doesn't he? It's the original dream team. As soon as word spread that Sickles got arrested, people, his friends and family and colleagues start hiring every lawyer they can find uh, of any reputation. So you have um, uh, James Brady, who is the um, greatest lawyer in New York City, probably the greatest lawyer and the United States, who comes down to Washington to lead the defense. You have Edwin Stanton, who is a year from serving in Abraham Lincoln's cabinet as Secretary of War during a civil war, and at this time is one of the best-regarded lawyers in the country. And so Brady and Stanton will helm up this team of numerous lawyers from all over the country who are gathered to try to stop Sickles from being hanged. Sickles is indicted for murder. Everybody saw him shot saw him see, or a lot of people saw him shoot Key. What's his defense? He's got a few defenses. Number one, he says, the man who kills the seducer of his wife, and seducers in quotes, they always um, talk about, you know, the man is the seducer in this scenario, and they sort of say, you know, the woman has no agency in the situation. So they argue, look, the man who seduces another man's wife, uh, if he is killed, he's no victim in this case, and the man who shoots him is no criminal. 
So that was the first argument they made. The second is that even if you don't buy that, uh, we don't know that the, the, the bullet found in Key didn't match one of the guns found at the scene. Maybe that was Key's gun. Maybe, maybe Sickles was just acting in self-defense here when he put on three guns under a trench coat and wandered into Lafayette Square. Uh, but if neither of those are satisfactory, they argued that Sickles was temporarily insane. That yes, while people had interacted with Sickles immediately prior to the shooting and after the shooting, during the time it took to arm himself and go into Lafayette Square, Sickles was temporarily insane. Now, was that a common defense back then? No, in fact, it's it's quite novel. Um, the sort of modern test for insanity had just come over from the United Kingdom. Um, it's a monotonous test. It centers on whether you know the wrongfulness of your actions, uh, whether you know the difference between right or wrong. And um, people had started to plead, you know, the insanity defense. But in this case, Sickles couldn't plead insanity because people had interacted with him before and after the killing, and he was quite well aware of his surroundings and what he was doing. And so they argued that he was just temporarily insane. So it's a very novel defense here in the Sickles case. What happened? What did the jury say? Jerry said he was not guilty. Um, and I want to make clear, too, this sometimes gets dismissed as a 19th century jury falling for pseudoscience. Actually, the jury just wanted to let him go. The jury was persuaded that, that he had gotten what he deserved, that Teresa Sickles could have been any of their wives, and that, frankly, Sickles had done the community of Washington a favor by getting rid of this guy. So now the, the jury, they didn't have any women on the jury back then. No, no women on the jury. In fact, the only women who were allowed in the courtroom were witnesses. And so who were Sickles' witnesses? Who said he was, you know, temporarily insane? Well, they brought in a guy who had gone to college with him and had witnessed him get very distraught when his mentor on the faculty had died. And so they tried to establish that Sickles was prone to bouts of mania. Um, they argued that, uh, you know, they really try hard to introduce evidence of the affair at every opportunity. Um, so you've got people who saw Key in Lafayette Square waving his handkerchief. So they try to bring in evidence. And then when they can't get, um, you know, Teresa signed a confession for Daniel Sickles on uh, the night that, uh, the night before Key was killed. And the defense tries to bring this into evidence, and the judge excludes it. And so the defense team, against Sickles' wishes and without his knowledge, leaks it to the press in the hopes that it'll get into the jury room. All right, so he's acquitted. What happens? So he, you know, he's, he's a pariah in D.C. He sends his family back to New York, does reconcile with his wife, uh, and he really finds his voice during the secession crisis in 1860 with the election of Abraham Lincoln and the secession movement that starts sweeping through the South. And he is a firm advocate for the Union, for the South, accepting the results of the election. Um, and when ultimately uh, the, the South will not accept the results of the election, he raises thousands of men in New York City and becomes a general in the Civil War. And, and, and of course, that could be another discussion. But I understand your book doesn't go into his Civil War career or his post-Civil War career. Just, uh, you know, we talk about his momentous a decision on day two of the Battle of Gettysburg. And certainly, uh, you know, probably more ink has been spilled on both sides of that debate uh, than any other decision in American military history. Still very controversial to this day. 
Um, and but that was Sickles's nature, you know. And it does end with a fantastic story of Sickles after the Civil War uh, encountering the son of Barton Key. <laughs> now let me ask you something: What happens to his wife? They get divorced, right? <laughs> no, he actually takes her back. Um, which you know, and this this is everything is sort of set up uh, against Teresa. She's denied any sort of agency in the situation. They describe Key as her seducer. Oh, they, you know, they sort of talk about her sort of like a child who was taken advantage of. So on one hand, she has no agency, but on the other hand, she bears all of the blame. So she's the one who gets cast out of society. She's the one whose only hope uh, to ever have a husband is for the husband she has to forgive her and take her back. If he had divorced her, you know, her chances of ever having another husband would have been pretty close to zero. Uh, so she really gets the worst of it here, but he ends up reconciling with her and taking her back. Um, and that's much to the chagrin of the public. You know, there's this incident where a group of women are watching Sickles speak in Congress, and they can tell that well, the first woman says, boy, you know, that guy down there, who is he? He's being shunned by his colleagues. And the second woman says, oh, well, that's because he killed Barton Key. And the third woman says, no, that was all right. The problem is, is that he went back to his wife afterwards. I, yeah, it's a, it's a totally different world, I guess, and it's hard to get into the, the 19th century mind. But what does the Sickles case mean to America? A couple things. It completely changed the way we think about news and think about information, this blurring of the line between entertainment and news, this obsession we have with the scandal of the day, uh, with with famous trials. This all started with the Sickles case. Prior to Sickles, the most famous crime in American history, a murder of Helen Jewett, was covered with a few paragraphs here and there in sporadic news coverage. In the Sickles case, there's daily coverage, transcripts of the trial. The press is trying to wring every last detail out of every single person on the periphery of the case. This scandal-obsessed culture where the culture of breaking news, it all starts with the Sickles case. It all starts right here. This is the blueprint for it. Politically, what effect did it have uh, you know, on the nation? Sickles was a congressman. He was a noted Democrat, Tammany Hall. What effect did the, the, the case, the, the outcome of the case, have on American politics? You know what's interesting? Like today, um, these scandals take our attention away from, from issues that are arguably much more important. So during the Sickles trial... You have violence in Kansas. You have all. You have John Brown moving toward Harper's Ferry. You have all these uh, events that are, have either taken place or are about to take place. They're going to throw the country into civil war. And all America can pay attention to or talk about or care about is this lurid, uh, lurid affair that led to a murder that's now a sensational trial. And so you know, that was a political effect. And actually, it's interesting, Democratic presidential candidates, uh, hopefuls for 1860 started showing up at the Sickles trial because they knew that was the only way to get their name in the paper. <laughs> well, let, let me ask you something. The trial, this is over 150 years ago. Why did you write the book? What do you think the, the, the reader can get out of this book? What's the point? I think it's number one. It's just one of the most fascinating things that ever happened in America. Just one of the most amazing stories on every level filled with the most vivid characters that you wouldn't even dare to make up if you were writing fiction. And you have this confluence of people coming together in Washington, D.C. on the eve of the Civil War, you know, the, the birth of our scandal-obsessed uh, culture, media culture. And um, I wanted to see where it all started. You know, this media frenzy we live in today, this focused and obsession with scandal, 
where did this all start? So if you love true crime, if you just love a good story, if you love American legal history or trials, or you're interested in the press and the way we think about news and breaking news, um, this story can appeal to you on a lot of different levels. If you're interested in any of those things, and I'm interested in all of them, uh, that was why I wrote this book, and that's why I think people uh, have enjoyed reading it. In your mind, was Sickles guilty of murder? Yes. Um, it is very clear there's no defense uh, to homicide in the District of Columbia based on whether your wife's having an affair with um, someone else. You, you just can't take the law into your own hands and shoot the person. Now, for 150, about 100 years after the Sickles trial, and largely as a consequence of the Sickles trial, it was almost impossible to punish anyone who had killed uh, their spouse's lover. There's something called the unwritten law. It was the most rigidly adhered to law in the country, and it, you couldn't find it in any rule book or in any case. But throughout the country, juries were getting rid of these charges if they were ever being charged at all. Governors were pardoning people. Judges were throwing cases out of court uh, under these circumstances. So for nearly 100 years, you know, it ends like in 18, 1958. We're not talking about ancient history um, where you have uh, someone killing to avenge their family's honor could not be convicted. But murder is the unlawful taking of a human life. And clearly in these cases, uh, these these killings were contrary to the law. There was no defense. Um, you know, the unwritten law was something that jurors observed, but um, wasn't written in any statute book, couldn't find it in any case. All right. Well, the name of the book, Star-Spangled Scandal, Sex, Murder, and the Trial that Changed America. The author, Chris Rose. thank you for being on Connor's Corner. Pleasure. And if anyone would like to connect with me, I'm at ChrisDeRoseBooks.com. ChrisDeRoseBooks.com? Yeah. All right. Well, thank you again for being on the show. Thanks for having me. Have a good day. How can I protect my family if something happens to me? What if I need to go to a nursing home? What will happen to our savings, our home? What's the best way to give my home to my kids? Who will help us take care of Grandpa? These and many other questions can be answered with a phone call to Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC, 718-238-6500. Mike Connors, one of New York Magazine's top lawyers, has over 30 years of estate planning and elder law experience. Mike and his team of professionals will help you protect your assets from probate, taxes, and nursing home costs so you can have peace of mind knowing you and your family will be taken care of and protected. I'm Mike Connors, founder of Connors & Sullivan. People don't plan to fail, they fail to plan. The time to plan is now. I'm Beth Connors. Call today for a free initial consultation with one of our experienced lawyers. Connors and Sullivan in Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, and Staten Island. Call 718-238-6500. 718-238-6500 or connorsandsullivan.com. I think I just found myself believing that I didn't need God. I just had everything under control, and church was actually a, a burden to me. I might have gone to church, you know, at Christmas time, gradually quit going. No, I didn't take my faith seriously, which, which probably means I, I never really got it to begin with. You can have a beautiful car, a big fancy home, but if you don't have Christ in your life, there's an emptiness that's there. We are enslaved to power or to greed or to wealth or to lust, especially as a man. But there's a true freedom to not be enslaved, but to attach ourselves to God and to be free. Thank God I'm home. Now that I'm back in the Catholic Church, I'm a new person. I love it. There's peace in our home that we didn't have before. You're coming home to a Catholic family where people today just embrace you. 
If you've been away from the Catholic Church for whatever reason, we invite you to take another look. Visit CatholicsComeHome.org today. Do you have somewhere to sleep? Did you eat today? Are you making ends meet? For thousands of New Yorkers, the answer is no. For children and youth, adults, seniors, people struggling with addiction or mental illness, and for the isolated, Catholic Charities of Brooklyn and Queens is there. With 160 programs and more than 4,500 units of affordable housing, Catholic Charities is one of the largest multi-service charitable organizations in the nation. We help change lives and build communities. If you or someone you know needs assistance, call 718-722-6001 or visit CCB. Welcome to the Connors Corner segment of Ask the Lawyer. Right now, we're very pleased to have on Victor Davis Hanson. He's got a book out, The Case for Trump. And I'm looking forward to it because Professor Hanson is not just a political commentator, he's an historian. Welcome to Connors Corner. Thank you for having me. So, obviously, we know what the, the book is about, but lay your case out. What is the case for Trump? really a book about how he got elected. And he got elected, of course, because while he ran as a traditional Republican and maybe 80% of that sense, low taxes, energy production, conservative cultural values, conservative judicial fix, he tweaked that message in a way that his 16 rivals had not imagined. By that, I mean he addressed illegal immigration, Chinese asymmetry in trading, the ill effects of globalization, and most importantly, I think, uh, the idea that he wasn't going to play by the McCain, Romney, Marcus of Queensbury campaigning role, and he was going to punch back. That got him the nomination, and then in the general election, he, he had three things going for him. He wasn't Hillary Clinton, who had very high negatives. He oddly came across as very much more empathetic. He used the word our, our farmers, our vets. Big, beautiful coal rather than going to West Virginia and saying that the coal industry should be shut down. He was authentic. He didn't change his appearance or his accent or his mannerisms as Hillary did, uh, depending on what locale he was campaigning in. And all of that allowed him to win. And then when he was elected, whatever one thinks of his rule, he did he did try to keep the promises and that, that he campaigned on. I think most people realize he's transforming the American judiciary. The economy is humming along. He did more energy production, more oil and gas production, lower taxes, tax reform. And the things that he hasn't done that he said he would, that is build a wall and stop illegal immigration entirely or not be so reckless in spending, uh, the alternative uh, party, the Democratic Progressive Party, is not saying that they want to be more physically prudent than Trump or that they want to be tougher on immigration. He hasn't been able to do that because he doesn't really have a, uh, he doesn't have any longer a Republican House and many in the Senate, at least in his first two years, were as opposed to him as were people in, his, in the opposition party. Let me ask you a question. You know, a lot of people bring up the point about McCain and Romney and Marcus of, of Queensbury rules. And then yet at the same time, they get upset because Trump does hit back and maybe not not in the classical sense. Uh, I don't think they're the same people, though. I think the Republicans, especially the never Trump wing, it's very small. But if a person says they don't like the way Trump campaigned or they don't like his demeanor, I think those are divided in two groups. One 
they don't like them to the extent they won't vote for him, and that's a minority. And others that, well, we don't like what he says or how he acts to people, but his agenda is our agenda for the most part, and therefore we're going to vote for him. And then the other people who like what he's doing, and that's his base. That's about 20 to 30 percent of the country, maybe 40 percent of his base of his support, 40 to 60 percent of his support. And they like what he's doing, and they think it's sort of necessary chemotherapy to kill a cancer. This country's been divided for at least the last three, four elections, if not more. And you wrote an article about the war over America's past is really about its future. So let me ask you, what is the point on that? And, you know, can you tell our audience your, your thinking in that? We ask ourselves, why all of a sudden is a Robert Lee Steve statue amoral and has to be removed? Or why all of a sudden is a mural painted by a communist Works Progress Administration artists in 1936 have to be wiped out. Or what's wrong with the, the Betsy Ross flag? I could go on. You get the, the drift. And the answer is that there are people in the United States now, progressive socialists, who feel that either the country is moving left or demographically it's changing or that people do not assimilate integrate and intermarry to make their superficial appearance irrelevant or whatever their rationale, they believe that the trajectory of the country is going in their direction. And we'll find out whether they're overreaching or not. But the point of all this is they believe that the country was flawed at its beginning, that its customs and traditions are not good, and that it has to be radically recalibrated, reinvented conform to their view of what it should be. And about half the country chooses to disagree with it. And that's why it's we're in a war about what America was and is and what America will be. Now, can you explain why would anybody want to take down a mural of George Washington? What's the reasoning? Ostensibly, the people, an African-American group of teachers said that they portray slaves. And of course, the mural, if you've seen it, is critical of Washington in some parts because he owns slaves. But the very fact that he's not entirely denounced and that he has slaves shows that the country was a slave-owning society. After all, he is a Virginian Southerner, and therefore uh, it can't redeem itself. Or it can redeem itself, but only through massive reparations and apologies. I think that's the point. If you can create a cultural climate of deterrence where everybody's afraid to talk about Jefferson or Washington and we don't look at the totality of their careers or their persons and we adopt this new, I guess it's a new idea, that one person's mistake or sin or shortcoming defines his entire personality, then, yeah, they're going to have a lot of power. It'd be like me saying as a historian, well, I can't really approve of changing these street names to Martin Luther King because I know he was a serial adulterer that he, according to a recent accusation by his biographer, he witnessed a rape in his his, his presence and allowed it to go on or that um, he treated women really badly or he, we know that he plagiarized his, FBI, his uh, doctor's doctoral thesis. I think that's insignificant to the totality of the contribution of King. If I were to adopt this modernist criticism, then I'd say, because he's not perfect, he's not good. I'm sorry. 
but it's one side is my point. It's asymmetrical. So that progressives say all of our people, whether it's Cesar Chavez or Margaret Sanger or Martin Luther King, were wonderful saints. And if you mention anything that was illiberal or really wrong in their behavior, then you're a racist or a sexist. Margaret Sanger, remember the head of plant, what would become Plant Parenthood, advocated for eugenics. Cesar Chavez put sent thugs to the border to beat up illegal immigrants. But if on the other side, if you're a liberal, then you say that Jefferson or anybody from George Patton to Jefferson to Washington to Abraham Lincoln is a flawed individual because his entire personality and, and agenda doesn't conform to what is now considered the proper one. How fair, I mean, how fair is it to, to, to try put 21st century ideals on an 18th century person or a 19th century person? I don't understand the point. Well, the point I don't think is historical. The point is to tell the United States that citizenry, that your country is now flawed and it always has been flawed and its constitution is flawed because these people don't fit our current standards of morality. And therefore, we have to radically change our customs and traditions. Now, that may entail getting rid of the Electoral College or passing a new amendment that wipes out the Second Amendment right to bear arms. Whatever it is, though, it's really a war about the future. If you can control the past and convince the majority of people through teacher education programs or university indoctrination that they never lived in a very good country, then they'll, they'll feel bad and they'll say, well, what, what can we do to redeem ourselves? And they'll say, well, you can pay reparations. You can scrap the electoral college. You can teach a different curriculum in the schools. You can start using race, class, and gender to adjudicate appointments, etc. That's the aim. And uh, they create a deterrence by saying, if you object, then you're a racist, xenophobe, sexist, protectionist, nativist, etc. And that's what this whole Trump uh, imbroglio is about. It's really a war for the past uh, and the present and therefore the future. The one good thing that we do see today is that President Trump is not afraid He's not so defensive. Obviously, he's not defensive. He he's on the offensive or whatever. But he's he's not backing down to these charges. No, he's not. And we don't really we can't really yet calibrate to what degree his tough rhetoric is working, not working, counterproductive, and or enhancing his agenda because the intelligentsia of both parties, and I mean the never Trump Republican intellectuals and media pundits, as well as the Democrats, are so offended when he says, if you don't like the country, remember, he didn't say, go back, I want you to go back to your place of origin. He said, if you don't like the country, leave. In fact, a lot of never Trumpers have said that about the Trump base. They've written that. Britt Stevens, Max Boots said, we'd like to deport you and bring in the illegal immigrants. But we don't know to what degree that's resonating, or it doesn't resonate, or it's irrelevant, because the polls on the one hand, show that he has an uptick in support. His support among Republicans went up over uh, 9%, and his general polls are much stronger now than they were a year ago. And yet we're told that he's so beyond the pale that he's going to destroy the Republican Party and lose. And so 
we're sort of replicating the atmosphere and the landscape of 2016. Same thing happened then. Why should somebody read the case for Trump? What do you think the, the reader is going to learn from your book that they can't learn from other sources? I gave my original title that the publisher did not like is why Trump won and she wanted to be more dynamic. It's not a an argument that Trump is perfect and you've got to vote for him. The argument is if he didn't come along, somebody else would have liked him for two reasons. One, the country had moved under Obama very hard to the left. And you can really see that with the Democratic uh, agenda for 2020. And I'm talking about the new Green Green New Deal or reparations or infanticide or a wealth tax or free tuition or free Medicare for illegal aliens or open borders. And second, under globalization and this leftward trend, a whole section of the country, the majority of geographical area, had been left out. It had not had the GDP or the financial growth per capita that the East and West Coast had. And it didn't think that globalization was so great. It didn't think that just unfettered trade with China was very fair. They didn't think that open borders really helped the wages of entry workers who were American citizens. And so I'm, I'm trying to describe why people voted for somebody who had n- neither political or military prior experience, which is, we never had that happen. And then why, when everybody predicted uh, that he either wouldn't be elected or wouldn't be nominated, if nominated, he would not be elected. If elected, he would not survive as president. His really followed an agenda that for the first time, you know, 11 years, we've had 3% GDP growth and record peacetime minority unemployment and near record peacetime unemployment rates for everybody, record lows. And as well as we're the largest now gas and oil producer in the world, and maybe soon next year, the largest exporter. So he's done pretty well. And how did that happen? And why is the subject of the book? The name of the book, The Case for Trump, the author, Victor Davis Hanson. Thank you for being on Connor's Corner. Thank you for having me. Again, thank you to Victor Davis Hanson. You know, at least he's he's one author that Michael, our son, you know, gives us some credit for getting on the show. It's one guy he's interested in. <laughs> you know, when I was thinking about uh, when we're talking about Dan Sickles, uh, uh, the anatomy of murder is floating around on Turner Classic Movers right now. And of course, that was a case about temporary insanity, too. Do you know Orson Bean, Kelly? I, I always like to ask young people these questions. I, it's so embarrassing. Yeah. I do not. It's Orson, okay. Just say no. Orson Bean was an actor, comedian. He did at one point more Tonight Shows than anybody but Johnny Carson. Oh, wow. And he's still, he he's still acting around. He oh, was in what, what? What? Desperate Housewives? Was he in that? Yes. yes. Yeah, he was in that. Oh, really? Yeah. You know, Orson Bean was just in a movie with Denzel Washington, The Equalizer. One of the things bringing Orson Bean to mind, outside of just saw Anatomy and Murder being advertised in turn of classic movies, is that he plays a psychiatrist in that movie. And it was his first film role. I remember him talking about that. And Jimmy Stewart was the defense attorney at the time. And he said that he was there all nervous and he's reading his lines and he's, you know, Nervous, the director's going to yell at him and everything else. Jimmy Stewart is playing a game of cards. Jimmy Stewart puts down his cards, starts the scene, is perfect, then finishes the scene, goes up, and resumes playing cards with the stage hands, <laughs> whatever. So, I mean, Orson, Orson Bean was truly, uh, you know, and he's well, he is an interesting guy. He's still alive. He's 90 years old. Wow. And 
he's been acting. He's still he's still acting. And but he brought up he's the psychiatrist in that movie who brings up temporary insanity and gives Ben Gazzara his shot to get off for killing uh, Barney or whatever the guy's name was. <laughs> so it's very a it, lot it, of similarities it, to this case and the Dan Sickles case. And, and if you have not seen that movie, you should watch it. It is extraordinary. Right. Jimmy Stewart is the defense attorney. George C. Scott is the prosecutor. Ben Gazzara is the defendant. Lee Remick is his wife. And Orson Bean is the psychiatrist. And, of course, we're a little partial right. to Orson Bean. <laughs> you know, if you want to hear any more about estate planning and elder law, we're not going to be doing any seminars in August. But in September, we're going to be doing seminars again. And so if you, you want to attend one of the seminars, there you can ask questions. How's what's the best way to take care of my house? Question: Why do you need a will? Why do you need a trust? And so, if if you want to attend any of our seminars in the future, give us a call at seven one eight two three eight sixty five hundred. We'll give you the schedule. And by the way, you know I haven't mentioned this a lot, and we do seminars at churches and synagogues and centers all over you know the city. So if you want us to do a seminar in you know one of your organizations. We'll do it. Just give us a call at 718-238-6500. I think Mr. Kincaid is telling us to go home. Oh, no. Bye-bye, everybody. We are gathered here on hallowed ground, voices raised, heads bowed down. We're gathered here on hallowed ground to sing this soul away. For our Ask the Lawyer friends and listeners, you can attend any of Connors and Sullivan's free seminars on elder law, Medicaid, wills, and estate planning, and more. Yes, it's all free and all close to you. So come to Connors and Sullivan's free seminars. On Tuesday, September 24th at Lenny's Clam Bar, 161-03, Cross Bay Boulevard in Howard Beach at 11 a.m. and 3 p.m. On Wednesday, September 25th at 11 a.m., 3 p.m. and 7 p.m. at Connolly's Corner, 71-17 Grand Avenue in Maspeth. And on Friday, September 25th, Seventh at the Adria, two twenty one seventeen Northern Boulevard in Bayside at eleven a.m. and three p.m. Can't go to any Connors and Sullivan's free seminars? Then call Connors and Sullivan at seven one eight two three eight sixty five hundred for your own free office appointment. Make an educated decision on your estate and family legal solutions today. Call Connors and Sullivan at seven one eight two three eight sixty five hundred or go to connorsandsullivan dot com. Plan now for later. The preceding pre-recorded program sponsored by Connors & Sullivan Attorneys at Law, PLLC.